0: hello everybody and welcome to pretend you read it the podcast about classic literature i'm sam your host and i'm really excited about today's episode because it's a little different from the ones we've had before um also stay tuned at the end of the episode for some answers to those burning questions i know you have about um, or i've had about why english houses have names and et cetera. Et cetera. Um, So one of the things I've been really excited about for this podcast is the chance to expand on uh, lesser known authors of the past. Obviously, up to now, it's like Dracula, Wuthering Heights, like really popular books that pretty much everyone has read or heard of, at least. Um, And while we're sticking strictly to a time frame, right, like so pre-1930s, we're not sticking to a particular type of book or author uh, or gender of the author. So. Uh, We won't only be doing European classics, um, nor will we be doing popular male authors only, as most classics just so happen to be written by men. Um, So on that note, I've got a goodie but oldie today. Um, So my friend Jen sent me a text about a a week or two ago and asked me if I had ever heard of this writer named Kate Chopin, Uh, and my answer was no. But I did some digging and some Googling, and uh, my interest was, you know, peaked, so off I went, you know, down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. I seriously could fall down a Wikipedia black hole for hours. But anyway, um, so Kate Chapin was born Catherine... Uh, I'm so sorry to my Irish friends. I'm about to butcher this. O'Flaherty? I have. Is that right? I don't know. <laughs> Catherine O'Flaherty in St. Louis, Missouri, in 1850. And her father was an immigrant straight out of the Emerald Isle motherland. And her mother was of French heritage, but American. And uh, she grew up speaking both English and French at home. And she attended school, grew up by um, mostly around other women. So her mother, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother, as well as like the nuns at her school. All of them kind of brought her up and were really active in her education. So as a result, she formed like really strong bonds with her family. And she had a lot of really strong female mentor figures and stuff in her life. And uh, in her teenage years, she started writing. I think she just started just sort of like journaling and writing short stories. Um, and then when she was 20, she married a man named Oscar Chopin. So if she was 20, it would be been 1870. Um, she married a man named Oscar Chopin who was a merchant. And he was uh, like Creole, you know, so like French, Louisiana type thing from god help me natchitoches parish (laughs) louisiana uh yeah i don't know how that southern stuff is on another level for me i'm from california um so after they honeymooned and all that they settled in new orleans and apparently kate liked new orleans a lot um however all of this was happening you know this is so they married 1870 so this was all like post-civil war like reconstruction time period, so economic and racial tensions were, like, gnarly, to say the least, and her husband actually joined the White Man's League, which was kind of like a KKK, so just as a side note there. Um, However, Kate, you know, being an upper upper middle class white woman didn't really have to deal with any of that, Uh, so I, I, I don't know, it doesn't really, we'll get into it. So when she was 29, they moved to Cloutierville, which was, uh, is a small French speaking Creole town in Louisiana. And, um, because they were having some like hard financial times and then Oscar died three years later and left Kate basically to raise their six kids. Not that that was, you know, a struggle necessarily for her because she just moved back in with her family in St. Louis, um, and, you know, lived with her, her mom and um, in their family home and stuff with all them kids. Um. So while in St. Louis, her doctor, who was also like a family friend, encouraged her to start writing more. So she finally started, you know, taking her writing seriously. And so throughout her writing career, she wrote over 100 short stories and a few novels, too. Um, many of her stories sort of revolved around the lives of women, which is interesting. And how their sort of like inner lives clash with their outer lives. Uh, which is something that is really, you know, a prominent theme in today's book. So she would spend the remainder of her life writing, and um, she died at 54 from what is believed to have been a cerebral hemorrhage, which sucks. Um, And one of her most popular works is a novel called The Awakening, which was published in 1898 when she was 48. And at the time, it was called Morbid and Vulgar. So obviously, I had to read it naturally so that is today's book and let's find out more about it um so the book starts off at a retreat at the grand isle which is a small little like barrier island off the louisiana coast that kate chopin actually spent her summers at in real life um i didn't know for some reason obviously i know that louisiana has a coast but it never occurred to me that people like hang out there i don't know why i just never imagined like along the southern coast right like the gulf of mexico all that. I'm like, I just never imagined that those are, like, nice beaches for some reason, you know? I figure, like, people go to Florida and maybe enjoy that. But, like, I never really hear about people being like, yeah, I went to the Alabama beach, you know? Like, I don't know. It just <laughs> doesn't really come to my mind. But I guess people do do those things. Like, where there's a coast, one must go to it. Um, So there's a bunch of, like, summer cottages, right, on this little resort spot. And we've got the Lebrun family, which is a Mister and a missus. and they they have two sons, Robert and Victor. Um, excuse me. Um, and they sort of manage the property. And then we have the Ratignolles with their kids, and then the Pontelliers, Leonce and Edna. Sorry, I speak French. It's really it's hard for me to not to be like the Ratignolles. You know, I just. Eh. Uh, but so we have the Pontelliers. Léonce and Edna and they have two kids and there's some more people there but they'll just kind of they come in later um, so straight away we focus on Edna Pontellier and she has kind of this like aloofness about her we start to see very quickly that Edna doesn't really seem concerned with her family life too much Um, Like, her husband comes home from a night out once, and she doesn't really give a shit, honestly. Like, it's kind of sad, really, because her husband really wants to talk to her about, like, his night. And, you know, oh, I just saw this person. We chat about that. But she's just kind of like, oh, that's cool. That's it. And then, so after that conversation, he goes straight into, like, berating her about, like, oh, like, one of the kids is sick. And, like, you don't care. And what's wrong with you? And blah, blah, blah. Just kind of her lack of attentiveness towards the kids. And she spends the evening crying outside on the porch. So that's, yeah, nice family fun times. Um, So straight away it becomes clear that Edna is, like, not your average bear, right? Um, So there's a quote they say. In short, Mrs. Pontellier was not a mother woman. The mother women seemed to prevail that summer at Grand Isle. It was easy to know them, fluttering about with extended protecting wings when any harm, real or imaginary, threatened their precious brood. They were women who idolized their children, worshipped their husbands, and esteemed it a holy privilege to efface themselves as individuals and grow wings as ministering angels. So one of these mother women, quote, quote, is Adele Ratignon, who is described as being kind of like the model of motherly goodness and beauty. Um, and she and Edna are friends. And Edna really admires her beauty, but they could not be more different, like physically or their personalities or anything. Edna uh, Edna's from Kentucky originally, and she's the only non-Creole in the bunch, um, but she's kind of uncomfortable around the, like, the culture, um, just because it's a lot more, like, the way it's described is, you know, a lot more flirtatious and sort of coquettish and all that, um, and Adele is just kind of, I mean, Edna um, is not really, you know, accustomed to that. Um, so Robert, Robert LeBrun, right, one of the manager's sons, um... Is just like really flirty with Edna and kind of follows her around the whole time. And Adele says to him, like one afternoon, he's she's like, you know, you should leave Edna alone because she might take you seriously, you know, one of these days. And uh, which is an interesting this is where we start to you know get towards things. Um, so the summer's plucking along and everyone's just kind of hanging out, swimming, playing, uh, doing summer things, and they all have like communal dinners and parties and stuff at the main house where the Lebruns live. And so, despite the general festiveness, Edna just kind of I don't like. She starts to slowly kind of have all these unusual thoughts and feelings. I mean, new for her, right? Uh. So quote, Mrs. Pontellier was beginning to realize her position in the universe as a human being and to recognize her relations as an individual to the world within and about her. End quote. So, and she's not sure if these like she's starting to think this kind of stuff because like her husband isn't around a ton and the kids are off doing whatever. So she's you know got a lot of. Time to her own thoughts. Um, and honestly, Robert is like really flirty. So it's probably like the first time she's had someone who isn't her husband flirt with her and like maybe not even her husband, you know? Um, but she's described as a very private person. So unlike the people at the resort, which are very like loud and friendly and flirty and all that stuff, she's kind of, you know, keeps herself. So this is all in the quote, inner world of Edna, right? And so she starts to think about her past and like, you know, she's been in love with this person, that person, a traveling soldier, blah, blah, blah. But that marrying her husband was like kind of an accident. Um, like she loves him, but I guess some, I've heard some women describe it as sort of like, yeah, I love him, but I'm not in love with him, right? Like, yeah, I grew to love him, like for these things. He's the father of my children. He's my husband, yada, yada. But it's not the same kind of like passionate, like love, like the physical love, I guess. Um, And she kind of thinks that marriage is like the nail in the coffin on romance and dreams and stuff, Um, which is a really interesting point, which we'll get to later. I mean, part of that is like, that's a relatively modern idea, you know, like marriage as for many, many centuries was just viewed as sort of like a, you know, a legal transaction, right? It was like security, financial security, social security, all of those things. Um, especially for women, but, and like your spouse's role was to provide, um, you know, whether you're the wife or the husband or whatever, it was like, either you're providing financially or you're providing emotionally, um, you know, like the family support and all that stuff. Um, and now like we have such an expanded idea on that concept, right. It's no longer just like, oh yeah, you're, you need to be there to provide like, physical things um and security but like you need to be sexually attracted to your spouse forever you know like you they and they need to do the same and like you need to fulfill each other's needs like all the time um so it's just a you know very a much more in-depth concept that we have now of marriage and like all the things that your significant other is supposed to be in your life Whereas in the past, it was not. So I personally blame the romantics, you know, in the mid-19th century for this, like, bringing all this idea of, like, romance into the marriage equation. Um, so we're talking, like, late 1890s. So that is still very much a thing where it's like, oh, romance. Oh, yeah. Like, wouldn't that be nice to have in a marriage, you know? Um, so even her kids, she's kind of eh about um, and as long as they're happy and like, you know, alive, she actually is kind of happy when they're not around. Um, though she never really says that out loud, but she does mention that she was like, you know, I would sacrifice. She's talking to Adele one day on the porch and she's like, you know, I would sacrifice everything that was unnecessary for my kids, but I would never sacrifice myself. And Adele is like, what? Like, how could you say that? You're like, you're a mother, blah, blah, blah. Which again is bold for the time, right? And even, it's even bold for now, to be honest. Because once women become mothers, like, you're expect like, that is your first role. So many women, and plenty of women, take a lot of pride in that, you know? They're like, yeah, like, I'm a mother, and then they're this and that. Or they're mom, and then they're their own name, you know? Um, which is fine, but not every woman is, you know, destined to do that. And especially in this time period when there was literally no birth control. <laughs> so, except, like, don't have sex. Um so, you know, it just wasn't really... You didn't really have much control over that kind of thing. Um, especially if you wanted to, like, be a normal part of... Member of society. You know, it was like, you get married, you have kids. Hopefully you don't die during childbirth, you know. Um, but anyway. So, during a party one evening, uh, Robert invites Madame Rice to the party. Rice? I don't know. It's German? I don't know. Um, who's this, like, older crabby lady who's just kind of hanging out of the resort, just flying solo. And he asked her to play a piano... Uh, at the request of Edna and she does and Edna just loves music and so she's like very emotionally touched by this um and she and Madame Rice Mademoiselle Rice um just kind of hit it off kind of become like friendly and after the party they all decide to go for like a moonlight swim and Edna who doesn't know how to swim suddenly figures it out and like swims out into the ocean it's just this like super liberating moment for her it's like magical really and somehow almost like life-changing Which, I think, like, ties into the physical autonomy, right? Like, especially for women at the time. Sorry, I burped. Excuse me. Uh, Especially for women at the time, you know, you... Even physical autonomy was very limited, right? You've got these corsets. You've got, like, you know, layers and layers of clothes. Um, You know, bike riding was just starting to become a thing for women. And women loved it. Like... They took to it, you know, like, white on rice. They were just like, yes, let me, like, go on my bike. Let me go out and do things. So for her to be able to, like, swim, right, and assuming that her, what she's wearing is, you know, swimmable wear um, is just something, like, a very new experience for her. And um, she, quote, a feeling of exultation overtook her, as if some power of significant import had been given her to control the working of her body and her soul. She grew daring and reckless, overestimating her strength. She wanted to swim far out where no woman had swum before. So that feeling very quickly starts to develop more and more with her. And that same night she goes back to her little cottage and she decides to sleep in the hammock outside on the porch. And her husband is like, come inside. What are you doing? And she's like, how about no?" And um, yeah, she just like, starts to develop very much like a staunch, like, you know what? No, I want to sleep out here. Like, leave me alone, you know? So, quote, she heard him moving about the room, every sound indicating impatience and irritation. Another time she would have gone at his request. She would, through habit, have yielded to his desire, not with any sense of submission or obedience to his compelling wishes, but unthinkingly as we walk, move, sit, stand, go through the daily treadmill of the life which has been portioned out to us. End quote. So, yeah, she really starts to become, like, in these small ways, very empowered to express herself and, like, what she wants. And she's like, you know, even if something as small as, like, you know what? I feel like sleeping on the porch. So, whatever, you know. So, very quickly, too, you can tell she and Robert, they got feelings. But, you know, her being married and all, they don't say anything. And Robert decides to leave for Mexico all of a sudden for business and just kind of up and leaves. So, Edna's kind of bummed out about that. And her and the family, you know, the summer's over, they all go back to New Orleans, and she just finds herself more and more pulling away from her expected role as, like, mother and wife and society woman, and her husband's, like, on her back about, like, not socializing with other women, uh, which these women are, like, wives of people he wants to do business with, so it's, you know, beneficial to him, and she just does not care at all. Um, He goes out of town on a business trip to New York, and her kids go stay with family his family in another town and so she's just on her own for a while and then is when things start to really get interesting um so Edna goes from zero to 100 it's like within a week of her family leaving she's just like fuck all this <laughs> so over the course of her husband's business trip she decides she's like I just want to be alone and I want to become an artist and so she starts an affair with this guy named Alcee Arobain uh, who is kind of like a ladies man, like, you know, he's got a reputation and she moves out of her house and into like a little bungalow that she buys with her own damn money. Um, her husband of course is not happy about this. And so like to start saving face, he like, cause he's like, before he leaves on his trip, he's like, my wife's being really weird. I don't know what's going on. I think she might be mentally unstable, of course. Uh, So he talks to a doctor and the doctor's like, don't worry about it. It's just a phase, like just leave her alone and it'll pass. It obviously does not pass. Um, So her husband has saved face right in society that she's moved out. He's like, oh, he starts telling people, writing letters, being like, yeah, we're doing some renovations on the house. That's why it's empty. And we're going to go take a trip to Europe for like a while. And yeah, Um, so but. She's like, yeah, say whatever you want. I don't give a shit. Like, whatever. She doesn't care about being part of society or any of that. Um, and she starts to hang out more with Mademoiselle Rice. And uh, just dreaming about Robert returning one day. Because he's he's sending letters to Mademoiselle Rice. And, um, you know, kind of asking about Edna. And she's like, oh, one day when he gets back. Um, so she kind of has that side story in her head. But the affair with Aroban. Two just seems kind of like by chance it's almost like awkward really she's very much searching for independence and he just kind of shows up and she doesn't love him or really have any kind of like romantic feelings for him he's just kind of there it's sort of like a friends with benefits kind of thing she's like yeah like it's nice to have him around and like you know whatevs um but then robert shows up and she's like oh shit right and her heart is like pitter pattering. And he avoids her at first for a while and then finally admits that he's in love with her. And she's like, yeah, same me too. And it's actually a really nice moment. Um, but, uh, he's like, well, we can't do anything because you're married. And you know, I could something about like, I could never like do that for, because you're like someone else's wife. And she's like, Oh no, it's cool. like, I'm I don't belong to anybody like I'll give myself freely because I want to you know and he's just like like he just does not compute you know what I mean um but then at that moment uh her friend Adele is going through childbirth so she goes to like her house to be there for her and all that but when she comes back Robert's gone even though she was like wait for me wait for me I'll be back um so Robert's gone And he leaves a note saying, you know, I love you. And it's because I love you. Like, goodbye. Goodbye forever. And that's it. So he's out of her life. He's gone. And then next thing we know, we're back at the Grand Isle. Um, Edna is there. And Edna runs into Victor, Robert's younger brother, and a local girl there. And they go to make dinner. And Edna's like, well, I'm going to go for a swim you know, while I wait. And they're just like, okay. And instead of putting on a bathing suit she gets all naked and she's like it felt like felt like the sun on my skin and it's just like the best feeling and then she goes swimming and then she you know that same feeling she described where she's like I want to um you know it's like I want to swim where no woman has swum before she does and uh she swims to her death so yeah she just swims until she can't swim no more and that's that's the end of it Uh, It doesn't say, like, she died, obviously. It's just one can assume. She's like, she just kept swimming even though she was exhausted. And she just kept swimming. Um, So, the end. Um, Where do I start on this book? It's a fairly short read, actually. So, if you're looking for something quick to gobble up, it's only, like, 250 pages. But as for the content itself, honestly, I didn't really like the book all that much. uh, And I'll tell you why. It's not for lack of substance, um, because, like, we have to keep in mind the historical context context here, because I think that's really important. Like, women couldn't even vote before the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920. Um, And that was after years and years of women, like, campaigning and going on hunger strikes and sometimes blowing up shit and, like, getting arrested and all kinds of other crap. Right? So it was, like, not a simple nor easy process. uh, But that was, like, just to vote. You know, like there's no workplace equality or birth control or any of that for like decades. Like all that was still illegal. All that was like in, you know, th- the decision, not in your own power by any means. You couldn't just be like, yeah, I want to take the pill. Like the pill wasn't around yet, but even if it was like, that wasn't passed to like, I think 1960 or 61. And then it was only for married couples. And then, then they finally were like, okay, well, you know, I guess that other women can take it. But yeah, so it was very much restricted thing you know and it's easy for us to not think about that because obviously most like everyone living today has never really lived in you know a world where that was at least in the U.S. anyway I you take that back um everyone in the U.S. has never really lived in a world where those things weren't really options so um especially not 120 years ago right where none of it was an option so Like, I think it's really important to consider that when you read this book, because through that lens, this book was very ahead of its time, you know, and decades before Betty Friedan's like The Feminine Mystique. So within the span of 250 pages, you know, a woman goes from dutiful housewife to like and does a full 180 where she ends up killing herself. So not out of spite, not to be like, oh, this world, you know, but because there's really like no other option for her life. You know, she's just like, okay, well, I do love this guy. I love Robert. I'm, like, not happy in my marriage or with this life that I've been given, really, um, just sort of born into and expected to fulfill this role because I have n- literally no other options, or at least that's what I thought. And now I'm, like, thinking, like, maybe there are other options. And then she finds, like, okay, well, um, you know, I don't want to do these roles, but, like, I still want love. Like, I'm still a person, except that with Robert... She doesn't want to marry him. That's a really important point because, um, you know, she doesn't want to be like, yeah, I'll divorce my husband or like get an annulment or whatever. And then we can get married because she, then she'll find herself in the exact same situation, right? Where she's like, I don't want to be held to these rules, um, because they're dumb. And so, um, she does say some really poignant things that I think still resonate with a lot of women today, which is interesting, right? Because, you can look at that and be like, well, like, not everything has changed, right? But overall, I just, I found it kind of dull, to be honest. I mean, this is not the first and will not be the last book where upper-middle-class and generally white women will be bored with their, like, humdrum lives and, like, taking the kids to school and, you know, baking cookies and doing PTA meetings and all. Like, they made fucking movies about this. What was it, Bad Moms, Right? Um, we're just like, oh yeah, like hate having to do things and like take my kids to school and expect to be like the best mom in the world. Like, uh, you know, so, and not that those things are invalid feelings by any means. Um, you know, there's like a whole networks dedicated to women who are dealing with this kind of ennui, right? Um, but I personally feel that economic mobility is the key to women's, autonomy like the world over and that is still very much an issue that's present in 2018 which is 120 years after this book was written so um I found it kind of blah because Edna realizes this like you know oh yeah I don't want to live in this house because it's my husband's house and you know because it's his and he bought it with his money it's his rules she realizes that But, like, and she's like, you know, I want to be an artist and all that stuff. Okay, cool. You want to have something to do. You don't want to just be, like, a wife and a mom and that's it. Um, But lucky her, she's got family money. So she decides to, like, dump her life and be an artist and buys a house and that's that. You know, like, at no point does she have to get a job or pay any of her bills on her own. Like, she's just lucky enough to have money coming straight to her and doesn't even have to think about it. Same thing that like Kate Chopin, you know, her husband died and she was like, rather than be like, oh shit, I'm a single mom with six kids, like, and women still aren't allowed to work. What the hell am I going to do? You know what I mean? She's like, oh, I just moved back in with my family. It was no big deal. You know, like, yeah, everything's fine. Oh, and I can just spend the rest of my life writing, even if I don't make any money. It's cool. So you know what I mean? Like those are things that women generally, in, um, you know, lower economic classes and like, um, other races as well, historically, as well as, you know, currently, like a lot of women have never had that option. Women, like women of color at this point in time, never were like, you know, I'm bored of sitting around the house all day, like just being a mom and like a wife and just, you know, doing any parties and like just having dinner with all these people like oh what's the meaning of it all i don't know you know and you know what i mean so it's just kind of like yeah cool like you're bored yep you're not the first person we bored that's for damn sure um so it's not like some revolutionary thing and just of course feminist literature has been around way before this lady so i don't know like while we have oh and then you know She is able, like, she has the means to buy her own house and, like, decide to become an artist because she wants to, even if she never sells a damn thing. It's like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life painting. But then that's not enough. So, like, she kills herself because reasons, you know? Um, Like, oh, I got this is the only escape I have from, like, all the pressures of society. Like, not really. She could have just, like, stolen away to, like, some island and just been like, yeah, I'm just going to live here by myself and, like, do what I want. But no. Um... So I don't know all women have different stories and while we share many common experiences as women intersectionality is a thing and this book turns a blind eye to like all of that so which is not surprising considering that Kate Chopin you know her husband being involved in like you know a white supremacist organization and her maybe like there's no documentation of her being like yeah that's great but like obviously you're around that and it's just like yeah well of course like you don't have to think about any of the like ridiculous horrible things that are happening to like other people and other social groups or classes or minority groups so yeah why would you like ever think about those things why would you ever think that life could be worse um so I don't know I just it's a bit boring honestly and bold for its time and in, in the historical context but um overall just kind of me so yeah sorry Kate Chopin um so yeah Well, that is today's episode. I've got, okay, answers to my burning questions. I have it on good authority from a Geordie, which if you don't know, someone from um, Newcastle, so Northern England-ish. I asked, I said, okay, well, a hillbilly is strictly an American term. Like, Also, I Google this. Hillbilly is a term that originated for people that are um, from the Appalachian mountain area. Did not know that it was that specific because I'd just be like hillbillies, like people, hillbillies, whatever. But that's where it's from. So obviously hillbilly being an American term specifically for like a region in the States. I was like, what do you call a hillbilly? Um, And his first response was, I don't think we have hillbillies or, you know, country peoples. And I was like, that's bullshit. But uh, his best guess was bumpkin. So now, you know, if you go to the UK, you can be like bumpkins, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and then my other question about why do homes in England have all these damn names, um, was basically based on, um, one theory was manorialism, right? So back, back, back in the day, there weren't, you know, streets were built around houses, houses weren't built around streets. So, you know, you'd have these like country homes or like homes out in the middle of nowhere. And obviously there's no street name to be like, oh yeah, it's on like main street or whatever. So, it would be easier to just name the home or name the land, you know, if you're owning, like, a whole piece of land. You'd be like, this is whatever. So, again, that same friend, I was like, he's like, oh, yeah, my home has a name. It's called Windy Ridge. And I think part of it, too, obviously, they've modernized. I think they started um, numbering homes back in, like, 1850 or something, sometime around then. But plenty of people like to keep their home names especially if it's like an older property or like historical because it's like sounds kind of nicer right it's like more charming you know i'd much rather live at windy ridge or like windy corner than like you know main street like yeah like i live at 1412 main street like oh i live at windy ridge like how cute so understandable um so yeah That is all for today's episode. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at PyrPod P-Y-R-Pod, and just kind of see what's going on. I'm still, like, you know, looking. I'm open to suggestions and requests for different books as long as they were written and published prior to 1930. So, uh, yeah, we're going to do the 20s and everything before that. So let's go crazy. Um, And also not strictly European or American, like, Western literature. So, yeah, get at me. And I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be back soon with another episode. Episode 5. Huzzah!